Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. After the murder, I think he was very surprised by how the world reacted, by how the West reacted. He saw this as, this is a Saudi citizen, I viewed him as a traitor. He sort of blurted out, like, oh, now now the world sees me as a journalist killer. Like, his image is very important, and, and because he's not the king yet, he's the crown prince, and, and creating this image of someone who's fit to be king is very important. And some of the people we spoke to who spoke to Mohammed bin Salman after the killing, he expressed, um, maybe not specifically about that issue, but he expressed regret that he'd gone too far. I think there is an element of moderation, but at the same time, I wouldn't expect any less fireworks going forward. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Justin Sheck and Bradley Hope are both award-winning investigative journalists with The Wall Street Journal. They are also authors of the just-published book, Blood and Oil, Mohammed bin Salman's Ruthless Quest for Global Power. I just sat down with Justin and Bradley to talk about their important book. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Justin, Bradley, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Congratulations on your book. It's terrific. Its title is Blood and Oil, Mohammed bin Salman's Ruthless Quest for Global Power. It has two qualities that I look for in a great book, which is it's about a very important topic, I think, 
and it's very interesting and easy to read. So congratulations, guys. Let me start by asking why you decided to write the book. Justin, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in 2016, we were uh, based in London. We're, we're both reporters for the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, I had been covering energy. Bradley had been covering white collar crime, uh, financial crime. And we, um, you know, Saudi Arabia was a place we weren't really that focused on because it had been for decades a sort of inward looking country that pumped oil, sold oil, uh, used the, the proceeds to pay for its own priorities and sort of kept stability in the region and in oil markets. It wasn't a place where there had been change for decades. And all of a sudden, this young prince kind of erupted onto the scene. And, and this country run by old men all of a sudden had a very young man who was in charge and he was doing very ambitious and aggressive things. Uh, and the, the thing that got us involved was he promised to take the Saudi state oil company, which is the world's biggest company, uh, public in, in, in the world's biggest ever IPO. And so that was of huge interest to the Wall Street Journal. And so we started digging into you know this question of what is the oil company, what is Saudi Aramco? And from there, we got into writing about the government and then the royal family, and then inevitably to Mohammed bin Salman, who is the, the most important and dynamic member of the royal family. And after a few years, the, those stories, um, it got to the point where we realized it was a bigger, deeper, more more insightful story to tell that, that would be a book. So it just sort of naturally went in that direction. Yeah. Bradley, you want to add? Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm a former Middle East correspondent, um, so I have a little bit of a, an, an extra element. I think that so a lot of Middle East correspondents they start their careers in Beirut or Cairo, but I started in Abu Dhabi, and that that was a, a huge experience for me because I, I just really became fascinated by these Gulf states, the differences between them, the kind of the differences between the members of the royal families and how they all kind of fit into the equation. And um, so I think for most of my time that I was in the region, I was first in Abu Dhabi, then I was covering the Arab Spring from Cairo and Libya. And um, but Saudi Arabia didn't really figure for me uh, as, a, as a major, you know, area of focus. I, mean, I think it was so kind of frozen in time. And, you know, we, we always kind of regretted having to travel there for, for during those days. And I think, you know, the, the thing about um, Mohammed bin Salman is he's also a great his story is a great way to understand the history of the country too, to kind of make the whole history more fascinating. Now that he's sort of breaking it up, breaking it into pieces, I think that that was another kind of journalistic opportunity that we had. Yeah. So let me ask you guys, how much, given the subject matter, and this is going to become, I think, clear to the listeners as we go forward as to why I'm asking this, but how much did you guys worry about and do you worry about the safety and the security of the sources who talk to you about the book. I think that's a really, I mean, I could take this one unless Bradley wants to go first. I mean, it's a really good question. And that's actually, that's the right question. You know, we've gotten questions about the safety of reporters, which is less of an issue, but the safety of our sources was, you know, a constant source of concern, um, partially because, you know, there's, there's a well- recorded recent history of, of Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states using high-tech surveillance, uh, even with people who are not in the country, to monitor their communications. And there's also uh, a well-recorded recent history of people who are viewed as disloyal to, to Mohammed bin Salman being imprisoned or, or kidnapped or worse. And so, you know, it was a constant 
source of concern for us. And we were very careful to use, uh, you know, encrypted phone apps and, you know, technology to, to the extent that that helps, but always with the knowledge that, you know, as has been demonstrated, no matter how good your encryption is, if someone is able to get access to the endpoint, to, the, to either person's phone, you know, the encryption doesn't really do anything. So when it was possible, we, we met in person with people and that was one of the and that's counterintuitive. That's more secure, but that was one of the advantages to being based in London and later in London. And I'm in New York now, where you could be in a in a city where there isn't a surveillance uh, capability the same way that, that you're you're going to have in the Middle East. You can meet in person. I know we. I was meeting with people in you know remote pubs late at night in like far off the grid parts of London because that was safer than than communicating with someone when they were in the Gulf uh, over our phones. So I would love for both of you to talk a little bit about who Mohammed bin Salman is, what's his personality like, what makes him tick, what drives him, what does he fear? In short, who is this guy? Uh, well, I, I think one thing that is important is when we started our, our research, we both kind of looked at each other and said, let's kind of start from scratch on this because there was such a, a a parade of news, and it was so high speed, and there was and there was a lot of, I would want to call it a, a exaggeration or or kind of like information campaigns going on too. So we, you know, it, it was easy to have a very kind of a caricature vision of who Mohammed bin Salman was. So I, I would say he's 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 um, an, an incredibly unlikely person to to emerge as the would be king of Saudi Arabia. Because, in in so many ways, he doesn't fit the the cast. You know, um, he he's not somebody that that had a kind of illustrious career, even in business or in university or in anything. Really, he was really just somebody who was very close to his father. And and I think one of the key things to understand about him is that early on, he developed a heuristic that he uses time and time again in every situation. Um, it, presented with a problem, he he takes. He, he has different opportunities to go forward. One of them would be a, a sort of middle road or one of them would be to do nothing. And one of them would be this extreme option. Like what's the most extreme thing I could do that could really shake things up and have the potential for a, a completely new outcome? And I think it worked early on in his life for him. So for example, when he was given smaller tasks, like there was a famous example where he was told to help out with evicting um, one of the wives of King Fahd. And from a palace, because that palace was needed for other purposes, he um, so he sort of n nobody else was able to do this. She she was a strong personality, but he showed up with a couple of buses um, full of cleaners and workers, and and so said to her in very clear terms, "You're you're you're leaving tonight. The power is going to be cut off at midnight. These people are here to pack your things," and it's just sort of an a, a aggressive approach that probably very few other princes would have taken, and he kept using that over and over again. Um, one other thing that I would say that is pretty important is sometimes he's made out to be very emotional and erratic. And, and while, of course, I'm sure he has his emotions like anyone else, I actually think a lot of his decision making is, is highly strategic. It's just very, it's almost bold to the point of reckless in most cases. So it looks like it's erratic or emotional, but in fact, it's just him thinking, I want to achieve the, the biggest possible outcome in the shortest period of time. And uh, one other kind of interesting experience is the more you research or understand about him, he 
he he has a kind of chameleon effect on you because he he's in some ways he's he's a a classic millennial. He he loves video games, um, first person shooter games, or uh, as we describe in the book Age of Empires, which is kind of ironic. And he watches movies, he watches TV shows. You know, he's famous for being out in his tent in you know in outside of Riyadh and and calling up ministers and asking why is the internet so slow i'm struggling to like stream to um stream game of thrones in my tent and and so you know at first he seems like somebody that you might be able to recognize or you might be able to understand but it is a bit of a chameleon effect because really he was he was steeped and raised in a very sort of strange and interesting background um being learning everything from his father who was the governor of riyadh and, and who really understood and administered saudi politics in in all of its forms. Justin? Yeah, thanks. So so to add to what Bradley was saying about about Mohammed bin Salman, the thing that that struck me was, you know, when we initially looked at him, we we had the same reaction I think a lot of people have, which is seeing this seemingly contradictory figure, someone who on you know, you know, on the one hand he seems like a liberalizer, and on the other hand, he seems like a despot. And it seemed there seemed to be very little uh, in common with, with these two sides of him. You know, on the one hand, he he was he's creating freedom. On the other hand, he's you know cracking down very harshly on, on people who criticize him. But as we we got deeper into it and got to understand him a little more, you know, I, I've come to see that a consistency across all of his actions, and that is that his goal, his, his main chief goal is to make sure that his family, the Al Saud, continue as the rulers of Saudi Arabia for as long as possible, and that he be the next member of that family to take the throne, and you know the first member of his generation to take the throne. And with that in mind, you, you can see a consistency in all of that, the liberalization, you know, allowing women to drive, uh, allowing movie theaters back to the country for the first time in decades, concerts, um, tapping down the religious police. A lot of that... Uh, or perhaps all of it was aimed at at building support for himself among the the country's youth population. And the idea is, you know, in the past, the Al Saud had been uh, had got their legitimacy as rulers from their alliance with this very conservative religious establishment. It was it was the alliance between the religious establishment and the family that uh, helped his grandfather conquer the country that's now Saudi Arabia. And for you know, since then, for a century or so, their legitimacy has come has come from the religious association. What Mohammed bin Salman saw was a country where you know, 60% of the population is under the age of 30. They have the world's highest smartphone uh, usage rate, the world's highest social media saturation. So you had all these young people sitting around on Instagram, seeing their peers in other wealthy countries having all sorts of economic opportunity, entre- entrepreneurism opportunities, going to movies, going to concerts, going on dates. And they couldn't; they were not allowed to do these things because of these religious strictures. And his concern was that this population wasn't going to think of him or his family as legitimate rulers based on their alliance with the people who were constraining their lives. These people wanted uh, different types of social freedoms. And so his liberalization seems very much aimed at building a constituency among the young people, both to prevent protests and threats to the family and also to show people in the family that he has the support, that he's the he's the one with the support of the population. And on the flip side, you know, the the arresting people who criticize him on Twitter, the the Hashoji incident, all of these things that are that are very um seem very brutal were, were done to to try to tamp down on criticism and tamp down on public criticism that could undermine him. Uh you know, similarly things like the the Yemen war and, and some other 
big and very aggressive actions he's taken. The, the Cutter blockade seem uh, sort of questionable, but if you look at them as things that he's doing to build a kingly reputation to show that he's someone who does big things, he leads a country, he he acts, he takes action rather than sits back and watches, they, they all, they, there's a bigger consistency of purpose that you can see with him. So do you think there are leaders in the world that you think he looks at and tries to model himself after? I think, you know, he's, that's an interesting question. We, you know, one of the points in the book we talk about is some of the people that he was admiring. He, he is, um, uh, he hasn't really spoken about this much, but he does have an interest in some of the, the, the famous caliphs and the early, you know, the, or the early eras of, of Islam. Um, he's especially the ones that are, are known for their kind of aggression and, and prowess and, 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 and battle. He famously talks about his father, his grandfather a lot, of course. Um, in in the world at large, I think there's I think he doesn't have a necessarily a model. Um, he definitely bristles at being compared to others, especially people like Putin and uh, Saddam Hussein. But I think, you know, in some ways, he looks up to businessmen more than he does um, fellow world leaders, and and he spends so much of his time on business topics. I mean, even as we speak now, um, our latest reporting is that he's been. Um, hold up out at his neom this big project where he's built some palaces for him and his family and he's been having these kind of round the clock discussions about the 2030 plan the economic plan and you know in 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 while during covid-19 he's he's um his team have built a kind of a red sea tourism company that has cruise ships you know, starting to 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 go around the red sea for you know homegrown tourism those are the kinds of things that really motivate him and so you know he loves these characters like Steve Jobs um, and, and another kind of famous American businessman, and maybe that explains also why he spends so much of his time with people like Masayoshi Son. You know, this sort of uh, so I guess you call him a visionary technology character who always wants to. And 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 Masayoshi Son keeps coming back to Saudi Arabia to help out on any kind of project that he has, including it, whether it's even things like Mecca. Um, the the future of that city. You know, he he's listening to those guys and getting their advice more so than than anybody else. So we've we've kind of touched on this already, but but maybe go into a little bit more detail. You know, there is this great dichotomy that you guys talk about that I think you've done a great job squaring between the great reformer and the ruthless dictator. But maybe you could just give our listeners some examples of the great reformer and then some examples of the ruthless dictator just to, so people are thinking about it. Yeah. So, so some of the reforms, um, you know, are the things that, that we talked about uh, a little bit, you know, the social reforms, like uh, taking power away from the religious police, making it so that members of the opposite sex can kind of like almost go on a date in public, which you couldn't do allowing live music, allowing uh, movie theaters to come back in, creating uh places where there can be tourism. And all of these you know, are certainly meaningful, uh, allowing women to drive. You know, th- these are things that, that have meaningful effects on, on people's lives. But in terms of his grand vision for, for Saudi Arabia, uh, the, the, probably the, more diff- I mean, that's the more difficult reform, the one that's not the low-hanging fruit, is transforming the economy to get away from oil. And this is something that, that Saudi Arabia's allies have been pushing the country to try to do for decades, saying, you know, one day the oil is going to run out and you're going to need to have a real economy or else you're going to descend into chaos. He was he he saw that his, you know, uncles who had been king had just 
done very little and acted so slowly. I think he also came in at a time where, you know, he, he, his father becomes king in 2015, 2014. It's when the American fracking boom really took off in a way that uh, sent the U S on this trajectory to uh, become an oil exporter rather than an oil importer. So, uh, and, and then we get to this point now where there's a question about whether the demand for oil will run out before the oil itself. So he sees a much shorter horizon in which he needs to diversify this economy and get it off its dependence on oil. And everyone supports that. And there's been very little progress doing that. So on the reformer side, th- those are the key things. On the the, non, the non-reformer side, whatever you want to call it, the things that have led people to call him a brutal despot. I mean, the the bombing of Yemen was some, you know something he started doing a couple months after taking over the military, and you know Saudi Arabia had always been this uh, a place that sort of followed in terms of uh, military campaigns, and he w- wanted to take the lead and go after what he saw as an Iranian backed you know rebel militia in Yemen r- right on the other side of Saudi Arabia's southern border, and you know he and his top officials told people that you know oh this will be over in a few weeks maximum a few months, and you know. Five years on, there's you know uh, famine. Um, there have been bombs dropped on, on innocent people, thousands and thousands of deaths. I mean, it's the world's biggest humanitarian crisis, uh, and that's something that you know he's he has decided to continue doing uh, to fight this proxy war. So that's obviously you know seen as problematic in the eyes of many of the world. There's uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who had been this Saudi writer who was writing for the Washington Post opinion page, who was you know famously killed and dismembered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul by men working for Mohammed bin Salman. He, he said he didn't order them to kill him, but nonetheless, they were working directly for him. That's you know, going to be a permanent stain on him. Uh, there's been this, this trend that we and our colleagues have written about in the journal of you know, if someone, critic- someone with a lot of Twitter followers and sa- followers in Saudi Arabia criticizes him, he'll bring the person in and maybe question them or beat them or, or imprison them just for criticizing him. There have been other, you know, clerics who've been criticized and, and accused of uh, terrorism on relatively thin charges because they seem to be threats to his power. So there has been a very clear you know, tightening on Saudi Arabia's tolerance of criticism and very harsh treatment of people seen as, as rivals. You know, that he, he turned the Ritz-Carlton in, in Riyadh into a, into a prison and brought in many of Saudi Arabia's richest and most powerful men and, and force them to cough up some of their wealth or else face, you know, indefinite imprisonment. So there's been a lot of, a lot of, you know, both sides there. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Justin and Bradley. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Bradley? Yeah, I think one thing I'd also say is um, Mohammed bin Salman, despite being seen as a reformer, probably being seen as a reformer in the West Western media and also among youth, Saudi youth, he also he he's he's completely allergic to anything close to political reform. I've never in, in any of my reporting heard of him having anything close to a discussion even of 
of political reforms. And in fact, one thing that I found really interesting, and it kind of goes again back to his his reliance on on advisors and and um, you know management consultants and things like that, is that early on he he instructed his team to go and poll. To, to, to conduct polls around the world about Saudi Arabia. So he got a lot of his initial ideas of what to focus on what had to do with global perceptions of, of Saudi Arabia. So they came back with a list that said, well, the, the predominant, um, the dominant perceptions of Saudi Arabia are, you know, it's a, it's a bad place for women. Um, it's, it's considered backwards. The religious police are out of control. You know, the, the kind of uh, shallow perceptions that most people have of Saudi Arabia, not not that it's inaccurate, but it's just that's that's about as far as it goes. And and he instructed teams to be formed around each one of these key things to go out and and start making start researching how can we how can we up in this. And to me, that's such a profound thing because he didn't go and poll Saudi citizens; he polled the rest of the world about it. And I think that really explains something. You know, he is completely politically illiberal, but he's socially liberal and. That is something that everyone needs to know when they're when they're trying to think about Mohammed bin Salman. Do you think have have you guys seen any moderation in his despotism? Has he learned anything from Yemen and Khashoggi and the backlash in the West? How do you how do you think about that? Well, Yemen. Yemen is hard. It's hard to say if he's learned. I'm, I'm sure he's learned lessons from Yemen, but it continues. And, and sort of the nature of a quagmire is even if you learn le- lessons, you're still stuck in the quagmire and there's not a straightforward way out. Um, you know, I, I mean, he was already a couple of years into Yemen when, when they launched the Qatar blockade, which, which didn't work out either. Um, so he, I'm sure, I think he's probably learned lessons about perhaps taking the most aggressive possible stance in, in, you know, geopolitical uh, conflicts. On Khashoggi, we have a little bit more insight. And, you know, after after the murder, I think he was very surprised by how the world reacted, by how the West reacted. And, you know, you could see some of the early, you know, after initially denying it and then admitting it, the Saudi government, you know, the foreign minister went on Fox News and, and said, you know, what about Abu Ghraib? There's sort of this like whataboutism approach that, you know, we would hear a lot from people in and close to the royal court. And that's not a an argument that resonates in the U.S. and and in Europe. And I think he was very surprised by the outrage and by the fact that people in these other countries that he considers important were going to harp so much on the death of one Saudi citizen. He saw this as this is a Saudi citizen. I viewed him as a traitor. Um, why is this such a big deal? And you know what he told someone uh, who we talk about in the book was that you know he sort of blurted out like, oh, now, now the world sees me as a journalist killer. Like his image is very important and, and creating, because he's not the king yet, he's the crown prince and, and creating this image of someone who's fit to be king is very important. And he was extremely concerned and I think surprised that he is now defined in the eyes of, of many foreign leaders as the guy who killed the journalist. So I think he's learned to be a little bit less aggressive when it comes to dealing with individuals overseas like that. You know, they, they have a long history of, of kidnapping and, you know, rendering critics. And, and that seems to have been toned down a little bit. I think also we've, we've, we've noticed, I mean, we, and some of the people we spoke to who spoke to Mohammed bin Salman after the killing, he expressed, um, maybe not specifically about that issue, but he expressed regret that he'd gone too far 
you know, because th- this year, 2020 was meant to be the year when he was supposed to kind of um, button up all these issues. He, you know, there was a team trying to figure out the Qatar blockade, Yemen, and and of course things got went, went completely differently than he had planned, but he had hoped to be on the path to rectifying his image. And so I think that that idea of image is going to be um, really useful in understanding what is going to come next with Mohammed bin Salman, you know, because now at the same time, maybe he has toned down and he, or at least he's more responsive to criticism, you know, in, in advance. He, at the same time, he does still have that, um, I guess you call it decisiveness streak and that heuristic to go for the biggest option. And I think the, the oil war he started with Russia that had global ramifications is a good example of that because it was, it was clearly not the, 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 the low impact decision. You know, he, he wanted to do something. He wanted to make it, make it clear that he could play chicken with Russia, but he also wanted to show the rest of the world that Saudi Arabia still matters. Even though the United States no longer depends on Saudi Arabia for oil the way it used to, Saudi Arabia still is where oil prices are decided. You know, he can make a decision and it can have global impacts. So I think there's an element of moderation, but at the same time, I wouldn't expect any less fireworks going forward. So that's a great transition to how do you think he sees the United States? How do you think he thinks about us? It, it's, it's a good question. You know, the, I sort of touched on this before, but for, for decades, the Saudi-US alliance w- was fairly straightforward. The US wanted consistent, uninterrupted oil imports. Saudi Arabia wanted the, the military alliance and and the deal was you know Saudi Arabia would not mess with the price of oil would keep the oil flowing and would contribute to stability in the region and the US would buy the oil and be aligned with Saudi Arabia against its uh, chief antagonist Iran it's an oversimplification but that was more or less where it was and Michael as you as you know better than us um, the relationship wasn't was held largely by people who were were institutionalists people who'd been in the US government you know, under Reagan, under under both Bushes for for decades in the State Department, in the CIA, <laughs> like me, yeah, 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 exactly. And and on the Saudi side, there were people um, like uh, Mohammed bin Salman's predecessor as Crown Prince, Mohammed bin bin Nayef, but also people who were not members of the royal family, who were essentially technocrats who worked for him, who had long, a long standing relationship with the U.S. And, and on security, there was this sort of institutional relationship. And what happened? Um, you know, as as the U.S. became a net oil exporter rather than oil importer, that foundation for the relationship between the two countries disappeared. The U.S. doesn't need Saudi Arabia. I mean, the U.S. The US wants stable oil prices, but the U.S. doesn't need Saudi Arabia to, to send oil here anymore. And at the same time, Mohammed bin Salman in 2015 comes in and realizes that the alliance with with the U.S., the, the, the relationship between the kingdom and its most important ally is held by people over whom he has no control. And in some cases with whom he's a rival, you know, his main rival for the throne, Mohammed bin Nayef, his cousin, going back to the post 9-11 days, had this longstanding intelligence relationship with the US and also with the State Department and his people did too. And so Mohammed bin Salman saw that he needed to take control of this relationship to pave his way to the throne, or at least he believed that. And he, want, and he wanted to be seen 
within Saudi Arabia and within the Muslim world as the person who was the point person in that relationship. So to that end, you know, in 2015, he fired uh, a guy who's been in the news lately named Saad al-Jabri, who was um, the top you know, non-royal intelligence official uh, working for Mohammed bin Salman's uh, rival. And he took subsequent steps to sort of undermine Mohammed bin Naif, you know, his cousin, and to take control of the U.S. relationship himself, largely by forming this, this kind of one-on-one relationship with Jared Kushner and, you know, between his men and the White House. So he sees the U.S. as an incredibly important ally, um, both to Saudi Arabia, but also for himself. He wants to be the person who controls that relationship so he can show other members of his family and, and other people in Saudi Arabia that he is a person who needs to be king. And so the U.S. relationship is, is, it's not just about what's best for the kingdom, it's about what's best for Mohammed bin Salman. Now, obviously, Saudi Arabia buys huge amounts of weaponry from the U.S., and these are this is very important to him and to the country, and, and that's a longstanding important thing. But a lot of his relationship with the U.S. has been focused on how he can turn it into something that paves his way to the throne. Bradley, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think the only thing I would add is um, as much as I, I agree with everything Justin said, of course, but I think the other thing to keep in mind is even if he understands the relationship is changing, I think in his early experiences with these other world leaders, whether it's um, Putin or or uh, the leadership in China, I think he, he came away from those experiences worrying a lot more about those other guys. And, and preferring the United States in, in just a kind of personal way. You know, people, he often tells people or told people about all of his favorite memories in the United States. I mean, th- that's something that he, I think, he, it, I think that's in a way why the Hashoji um, situation is, it, it really hurts him on, on another level, which is that he feels like he's probably not, it's not good for him to go back to the United States for a long time. Uh, he doesn't know what the ramifications are, much less if there might be protests or something, but I think he still has a deep affection for America, its culture, um, its its attitude towards business, and and you know obviously he's he's deeply attracted by these technology companies out in Silicon Valley. So I think n- no matter what the changing relationship is on a kind of government to government level, I think that's going to still be something that's important to him because he doesn't enjoy even even going to Pakistan where he was um, that was one place he was able to go after the Shoji murder where he was sort of feted and the newspapers all ran front page stories about how great he was. I think it's still not the same for him as traveling to New York where he used to spend a lot of time with his dad while I think it was his uncle Sultan was in, in receiving medical treatment. He has a lot of memories about Manhattan. Uh, you know, he loves walking around and all that sort of thing. So I think that's still going to be something that's important going forward. Given that he, that he played the U.S. card by building the relationship with Jared Kushner and the president and the White House, not through the institutions. Do you think he worries about a Biden administration? I, I think that he he's not too worried because at this point in time, he's not in a kind of fragile position where let's say that um, Joe Biden is elected as president. What, what could that mean for him? I mean, in a way, actually, I'm kind of interested in what you think, Mike, but um, I think that he's going to feel like there could be some more noise from the government, but it's unlikely to be a kind of wholesale shift or or a decision that Saudi Arabia is no longer a core ally in the region. And and if and let's say that Mohammed bin Salman is set to become the king of Saudi Arabia, and he's 35 years old now, maybe he's going to be the king for five decades or 
or you know 10 to 12 presidents so i think he i think he he knows he has only to, if even if he has an unpleasant interlocutor on the other side he only has to sort of wait around for that guy to to be passed over to the next guy uh yeah, yeah i mean no i you know i think i think i don't i don't know that i, I don't know that I, I do need that i mean I, I i agree with everything bradley said and and i think that um that yeah you know just to add on to this this long time horizon he sees you know he he's not like an american or european politician who is worrying about how things will look one or two or three or four years out he's looking at you know 40 or 50 years out cuz he's 35 he could be king for half a century and so his decision making is being done with different um just a, a different perspective there and, and you know i think that's something that, that that i always have to remind myself of he also has the Trump card sitting in his deck if he wants to use it. If if he decides to play the aggressive, high-impact move, which is fly to Jerusalem and shake hands with the, the leader of Israel, I think he knows that that, while being immensely risky in many different ways for him, it, it is something he could do that would change the, the discussion, change the narrative. So you guys have been fantastic with your time. I just have two more questions for you. The first is, do you have... Is there any question in your mind that he will become king when his father dies? Or is that a given? Well, um, it seems to be a given. But, you know, his his five years, or we can go back to his six years, the last six years of his life have been full of surprises and, and full of unpredictable events. And, you know, he's, I think, very effectively sidelined his rivals within the royal family, from what we can tell, um, you know, many of them are under house arrest or, or worse. But we, you know, there's always the threat of someone else in the royal. I mean, you hate to say, it, but you know, Saudi Arabia is a place where it's happened before that that you know a king a king was shot you know by by a family member. I mean, th- these these are like things that can happen. And but but barring something really shocking like that. There's no evidence that King Salman would want to change the line of succession. And in fact, you know, when when there have been efforts to try to take power away from from Mohammed bin Salman, you know, when in the aftermath of the Hashoji killing, um, President Erdogan of Turkey tried to sort of leverage that killing into an attempt to get Salman to move, you know, move Mohammed bin Salman aside, maybe take some power away. Uh, and it didn't work. You know, he came out of that as strong as he had been domestically. So I don't see any reason to expect there to be a change. But Bradley might might see it a little differently. No, I don't think so. Because, and also, the other thing to remember is that the the king. There's not a lot of of daylight between the king and Mohammed bin Salman because uh, Mohammed bin Salman is not only the crown prince, but he's also the head of the king's court. So he's sort of in charge of like all the information that goes to his father as well. And, and while I think he t- treats his father with great respect and, for example, th- this this issue of normalizing relations with Israel, um, you know, holding back is, is at least partially or probably mostly out of respect for his father's perspective on that. Um, I don't think that there's I mean, the only the only thing that would seem conceivable is if the king was so powerful and and so and, and there's enough distance that he could make a decision about changing things up or, or having a, a, a kind of another person step in for a period of time, but I don't think there's any indication of that. Yeah. All right. And, and, and the last question, which, which may be the most difficult and we only have a couple of minutes here, but I'd love both of your perspectives. So do you think he will end up 
making Saudi Arabia a better place or a worse place? And maybe to put a sh- put that a sharper way, do you think he's going to end up being the Ataturk or the Lee Kuan Yew of Saudi Arabia, the guy who takes his country to a much better place? Or is he going to end up being the Mikhail Gorbachev of Saudi Arabia, the guy who, you know, responsible for its collapse? How do you, how do you think about that question? And I know that's not easy. Uh, I'll go first, Justin, just quickly. Um, I, I think, I think at this point in time, if he continues on the path that he did the first five years, it, it, it could, it could lead to something that makes it more volatile and, and just more combustible as a country, I think. Because um, you can't just bring about social reforms and not talk about things like religion. He has not really espoused a kind of worldview about religion or the role of religion. And and same for politics. You know, he he hasn't even really have addressed it at all. It's not part of his plans. And I think that you you if you have this increasing social liberalization, increasing access to the whole world, I, I just don't think that can last. And because also these economic reform plans are not going to be as successful as they they might seem on paper. It's going to be a, a very rocky road with a lot of problems along the way. And that could cause a lot of unrest. But I think if he if he does start to shift his, his focus away and maybe focus more on economic development and less on uh, regional politics, on, you know, uh, adventurism with, with, with his army, then I think that I think it's possible that it could be more the way of Lee Kuan Yew. Yeah, I agree with that. But I would say that, you know, if he does focus on economic development, there there are huge risks there as well. Because, you know, if Saudi Arabia does not end its near total reliance on oil revenue, there's not really a, a great future for it. It's, it's hard to envision the future of a country that doesn't have a great source of revenue, has not enough fresh water for its people, not in, virtually no arable land, on and on, all the obvious obvious concerns. So, you know, he's talked a lot about how he's going to do that. But so far, the things that we've seen him do to, to get to a real economy haven't been effective. You know, I- investing, you know, close to $50 billion in tech company in foreign tech companies hasn't produced meaningful dividends for the kingdom. But beyond that, it doesn't, hasn't produced a clear roadmap for how those tech investments are somehow going to fuel that economy. At the same time, there's, there's been, there has been, you know, more entrepreneurism, more of a sort of a startup culture within Saudi Arabia, but not at a meaningful level that's creating revenue. But then beyond that, in order to create that real economy, even if there is progress, he needs to start taxing people. You know, in Saudi Arabia, with some small exceptions, there aren't really taxes. And so what happens when it goes from this subsidy-based economy where oil is paying for everything to having an absolute monarch who now tells his people he wants them to pay taxes. You know, that there's like a long history of that not going over well in, in America and other places. So I think that even if he does really double down on domestic economic reforms, it's very hard for an absolute monarch to decree, you know, now we shall have a functional economy and you will pay taxes to me. So there, there are huge risks there in the long term. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I think for most young people, Saudi Arabia is objectively much better to live in now than it was 10 years ago. But further out, I don't know. I don't know. The book is Blood and Oil, Mohammed bin Salman's Ruthless Quest for Global Power. The authors are Bradley Hope and Justin Sheck. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. That was Justin Sheck and Bradley Hope. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books.